Welcome to devmo.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Jonathan Melville from Melville & Company in Atlanta. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. And I'm Patrick Harrington from Miley Geeky in Boston. And today we don't really have a guest. We're just kind of talking about uh, something that as modern web developers, we likely are attempting to do every single day in our jobs, and that's solve complex problems. We may not be trying to put somebody on the moon or design a new rocket or perform open heart surgery, but we are in the business of solving problems for our clients. And oftentimes those problems can be complicated. Even our tooling can be complicated. So we're at the point where even getting to where we can work on a complex problem can be complex. So I guess the question we're asking today is, how do we go about the business of working through complicated tasks? And what are some of the pitfalls that we can avoid in doing that? So if we go back in time to circa 2015, 2016, Andrew, when did you start when did you get the idea for SEOmatic? I first got the idea for SEOmatic. I don't I have no idea what year it was. It definitely wasn't 2013. It was it might have been 2014, 2015. I don't I don't really know exactly, but basically I had been doing a whole bunch of this SEO stuff and I did it manually via templates in in Craft CMS. So you're just and doing I, all of it in Twig. I did all of it in Twig and there's a lot of stuff that was just so hard to do in Twig in part because of the Twig order of processing stuff and there's just things that made it difficult and then it was also difficult to then replicate it to another site or if I added features as I got better and better at what I was doing to then try to backport that to other sites, you know, and it just got really untenable. Anyone who's ever used boilerplate, you know, you know what I'm talking about because you start a project with the boilerplate and then you improve the boilerplate and you're like, well, I got these 10 other projects over here that use the same thing, but then how do I update them? So then I said, okay, I think I should write a plugin to do this. And at the time, I didn't really know much in the way of PHP or craft. So I was kind of cutting my teeth and learning both of those things when I was doing it. I didn't realize that. I didn't so you were not a PHP guy when you started thinking about this? I mean, I I like dinked around with it, but no, I wouldn't say that I, I really knew PHP in any meaningful way at all. I, I had done a couple of small plugins, I think, for Craft 2, but really, really minor stuff and not delving into some of the more modern features of the language. So no, I was very much learning PHP while I was building that, for sure. Huh, that's interesting. So I guess we're kind of taking plugin development as one of our examples for a complex problem because it, it really is. Like if you think about everything that goes into developing a plugin, you've got, well, first of all, identifying what problem am I even trying to solve? How am I going to work out that functionality? What's the UI of my plugin going to look like? What problems am I going to run into? All of these things. Plugin development can be quite complicated. You seem to be pretty good at plugin development. So I don't know if there's a there is a process that you sort of honed for yourself over the years because you've now got a couple of plugins under your belt, right? So it's mm-hmm. not like you're reinventing the wheel in terms of your process every time. So an idea pops into your head. It's a hard problem to solve. It's a complex problem to solve. You are literally at the starting line. When I find myself in situations like this, I feel like a paralysis almost. Like, I mm. don't know if you feel like you have to work through some kind of paralysis or, or figure out how do I even start to get to the point where I can start. I mean, what what does this look like for you in terms of I've got this big problem to solve. It's day one. I'm sitting at my keyboard. What's the first thing you do? So usually what I'll end up doing is I'll, I'll do some prototyping. I'll whip up a couple of examples, just like proof of concept of, 
of what I'm interested in doing. But a lot of times the process, uh, I'll hit a, a wall where there'll be something that it doesn't quite fit. You know what I mean? It's like you're putting together a jigsaw puzzle and you got this piece and if you mash it really hard, like it will it will fit, but it's, mm-hmm. but it's not right. Yeah. And what I do actually, I think one of the things that I do is I just take a little bit more time off, a little bit more downtime than a lot of people might on these things. And I just let it gel in terms of what problems am I trying to solve? And when I have these roadblocks, I just kind of let it go. And usually I'll figure it out somehow. I'll be in the middle of doing something else. And I'll be like, I know, I know exactly how I can do that thing, you know? And then once I have the roadblocks out of the way, I can sit down and do it. I think that they say that uh, an expert is someone that has run into every possible problem or made every possible mistake. I think the more that you do software architecture, the more you can hit the ground running to some extent because you you kind of know how to do the stuff. But I still think that planning things ahead of time really is what makes it a whole lot nicer. But I, I get what you're saying about it being daunting because I think if you spend all your time planning stuff, you still feel very paralyzed by it because you're like, oh my God, like I, look at look at this crazy thing that I'm planning. Is it actually really going to work? And that's why I kind of like to, to lay a little code down in the beginning to do some prototyping or proof of concept or, you know, just see if it could be done because it feels like I've actually done something. And then it feels a little bit less daunting. Can I say, I've read a lot too about people who, when they're faced with a complicated task, they they devote an inordinate amount of time towards prepping for the task. Mm. So they get to the point where they can't even start until they feel like circumstances are absolutely perfect. And mm. this in itself can become a paralysis. And sometimes you just have to say, you know what? I may not be ready, but I'm going to start. Yeah, sometimes yeah. you need to yeah get in there and start building something and see what works well, what doesn't work well, and make some mistakes early on to then get a get your bearings and understand, okay, now I understand a little bit more of the challenges that are coming because otherwise you can be overwhelmed by known unknowns and the unknown knowns and what you think <laughs> exactly. you know. But yeah, you need to get in there and start figuring things out and make some mistakes. And I mean, there's an old saying in software, like build the first one to throw away. You may need to start and build some sort of a prototype that at least gets some of your assumptions out there pretty early on, I think, and then say, okay, given what I know now, I'm going to go in and maybe plan this thing a little bit more intelligently. I think there is something to when you have a big problem, breaking it down into little pieces. But sometimes you just might not know what those little pieces are going to be until you actually get in there. Yeah. And and I like the unknown unknowns at Rumsfeld. That was a really good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, (laughs) he's a monster, but he was right. Yeah. But I I don't know about you two, but... One of the things when I was younger, when I was a wee lad in high school, we used <laughs> to love to go on dates to Chinese restaurants because they would serve us liquor and they just didn't seem to care for whatever reason. We'd order like this weird drink that had some exotic name that they would never drink, but it appealed to <laughs> it appealed to us, you know? Well, the 60s were in a simpler time. Yeah. And it wasn't this. <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? It was, but I'm it not was, that far off. <laughs> yeah, you're very far off, as a matter of fact. <laughs> But in in any event, so because I went there very often, I got a lot of fortune cookies, which incidentally is not a thing in China. They don't even know what that is. It was invented by a Japanese American. Okay, so they have no idea what a fortune cookie is. I didn't know that, but I figured that was the case. But a lot of the wisdom that I have is from fortune cookies. So that's kind of what has guided my life because of this. And there was one, it said, you know, the the journey of a, a thousand miles begins with one step, right? So just start taking that step that you're actually moving in that direction and you can see some progress. And what you said, Patrick, about throwing out the first version, I mean, I think it's true. I think the more experienced you get, the better the first version is or the closer to a real solution, but you don't know the real solution. You're right until you've done it. But that's why I tend to do these little proof of concept things just to kind of explore.
before. And it's nothing that would ever even be considered a first version or an MVP. It's just some stuff to be like, you know, hey, could I do this? You know, would this thing work? And I, I tend to like that because I feel like I'm making progress on it. And I'm also just kind of fleshing out with actual code something that could this thing, is it even viable to do it this way? Yeah, I um, I went to school for design. And I remember one of my professors would tell us when we were working on stuff because they, they made us turn in sketches and stuff like before we could even get on our computer, get on Illustrator or whatever we were using, we had to sketch the idea out first. And we had to turn that in for them to look at. So I had a professor that told us 90% of the first ideas that come out of your head are just garbage. You kind of have to think about it as ridding your brain of the dumb ideas before you can get to the good stuff. And this so guy I'll talking to my wife. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she, your wife's a designer, right? Yeah. But she thinks that 90% of the ideas that come out of my head are, are garbage too. I think they've oh, been I talking. See. Yeah. Oh, well. well, I've actually found that to be true. I mean, like, if, especially working on designs, like you, I do find that for whatever reason, your first instincts or your first ideas on something tend not to be your greatest ideas. Uh, very, mm. very often the the final product that I have is is definitely not the result of anything that I've sort of mulled around at the beginning of the process. So I think that that's part of the creative process for me is just getting rid of the non-viable ideas so that I can move forward with the, with the really good ideas that tend to come later. But I know that we were talking about planning things out, uh, what that looks like. So has anybody ever heard of this guy? He's a doctor. I think he's, I think he's actually like a cardiac surgeon. His name's Atul Gawande. Please forgive me if I'm saying that wrong. But anyway, he wrote a book called The Checklist Manifesto. I thought that this was really interesting. I read it last year. He talks about how checklists, the idea of a checklist is you may think of it as it's just a to-do list for dumb people who can't think intelligently through a problem. But often what's happening is we are focusing on what we see as the really high level pieces that have to get done in a project or like the super important stuff because we think that we have a handle on the easy stuff. Well, what can actually happen is forgetting the easy stuff can be what derails a project. So he talked about this study that was done at a hospital. I think it was called the Keystone Initiative. And what they were looking at is what is a very common, very simple task, not a simple task, but a very common task that has to be done in ICUs, which is putting a central line into patients. So this is like kind of like an IV that goes into a vein. So people were forgetting to do the obvious stuff because they were focusing on what they thought was the most important thing. So in this case, they were forgetting to wash their hands. Mm. So he developed a checklist for people to use every time they applied a central line. And what they found was that over the course of 18 months during the study, they ended up saving $175 million in excess costs because people weren't getting infections as a result of the central line. Wow. And they estimate that they saved 1,500 lives through this process of doing a checklist. So I thought that this was really interesting. I've started trying to tackle large projects this way in terms of breaking what looks like an insurmountable goal into a series of small steps. I found that I work better that way. I don't know if anybody else tackles a project in that way, like breaking it up into smaller pieces and then saying, okay, I may not be able to see how I'm going to get to the finish line of this Mount Everest in front of me, but I can easily climb this tiny hill today. Does anybody else do that? Yeah. Um, 
It's funny. There's a quote, I think, of uh, from uh, House of Cards. That's how you devour a whale, one bite at a time. Yeah. If, if you <laughs> <laughs> Problematic character there, Frank Underwood, but good quote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you need to take things down and make it digestible. Uh, they talk about this quite a bit in the book, Getting Things Done, too, where so much of what we are doing are these big, large, amorphous problems. And to try, there are so many ways you could start in. There's no right or wrong way to approach it. They almost need to take it down and break things down into manageable pieces and or even just chunks or groups. And then from there, keep on breaking things down until you have discrete, conquerable tasks as best you can. And again, you can get into this paralysis, analysis paralysis, but trying to get things into small bite-sized chunks can really help with trying to estimate on how long something's going to take or help you figure out, oh my gosh, there's a whole lot here under the hood than I previously thought. I, I definitely agree with that. Got a Andrew, problem here, checklist guy? Sometimes, but it, so you both are giving me a complex because I have a problem, which is that I'm not a book reader. Like I used to be. I used to read a whole lot of books, including just classic books and technical books and all that kind of stuff. There are a number of these books, like the book that you mentioned and also the generalist book and a bunch of these other books. I, I bought them because people that I respect have recommended them to me, but I don't read them. And I think this is probably terrible because just because you've been doing something for a long time doesn't necessarily mean you're good at it. There are lots of people that are repeating poor habits. And just as an example, so in poker, for instance, they'll you'll you'll find these old guys that they've been I've been playing poker for 30 years and blah, blah, blah. And they still don't even know the odds. You know what I mean? Like they don't actually fundamentally know the game. So just because you have experience with something doesn't mean that there aren't better ways that you could be improving your process, you know, kind of working smarter instead of harder. So how do I sh- should I be reading these books? Should I be trying to f- how much should I be focusing on my work and how much should I be focusing on the process of my work? You know, either one of you have a suggestion for that? I think that's an interesting question. I, in terms of focusing on the work, I've sort of come to an interesting conclusion in the last year. I, like a lot of people who probably listen to this podcast, we're running our businesses probably as lone wolves almost. So I am a one-man company. Um <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Um, we're kind of doing it all, right? I mean, we're, we're designing, we're, we're making decisions about how to architecture the front end. We're, if we have to write a custom plugin, we're doing that too. We're doing it all. And I've sort of thought about that and this idea that one person's expertise is enough to solve complex web development problems these days is an appealing idea because in my mind, the fewer people that you bring into a project or ideally, if you can just do the whole thing yourself, that's great because in my brain, I think, well, that's that's an easier way to solve it. It's less complex if you have less people working on it. I like to be able to do everything myself. I like to understand every inner working of a project. And if my own hand has touched every line of code, that makes that so. But I mean, but the, the reality is, it's just not true anymore, or at least I don't feel like it is. I mean, that's that kind of gets to the myth of the full stack developer, which we've talked about <laughs> before. And even if you think about it in terms of if you've ever installed an NPM package or a composer package, you're you're relying on other people's expertise anyway. Mm-hmm. There used to be a time when, when people were engineering buildings and these buildings were completed by master builders who oversaw the entire project. Mm-hmm. I mean, these days you've got, you have a single construction project that requires interaction between professionals who deal with everything from mechanics and masonry to waterproofing, to rodent control. And so these days, the myth that any one person can 
can tackle a complex project on their own is is just not true. So I've embraced teamwork and I've embraced bringing other people on because I recognize that increasingly there's really no way to do it on your own. You have to rely on other people's expertise. Either other people's expertise or tooling that other people have built. So for instance, Patrick is a big fan of Nuxt. JS, which is a framework for building stuff, right? Using mm-hmm. JavaScript and Vue. And it solves a lot of the problems, right? So it, it does it in an opinionated way. So, I mean, it is what it is. You, you kind of have to, you lose some of the flexibility when you embrace their model and you're like, okay, I'll do it your way because I want all the benefits of this stuff. But that is an alternative, right? To bringing additional people on is you can bring the tooling that other people have built. That is true. That is true. You can stand on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. And like I was saying with the example of anybody who's ever relied on somebody else's package in their in whatever they're building, you're, you're doing that anyway, uh, maybe yeah. on a smaller level. I mean, we're all using so many layers of stuff. It's ridiculous. As Patrick very kindly pointed out, I'm old enough to remember back in the day when you could actually code stuff in assembly language. And then we're like, ah, this really <laughs> kind of sucks. You, you can't build a whole lot of stuff on this. So let's write a C compiler where, where at, the, at the time C was like a high level language. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then you, you build an operating system with C and then you build all this other stuff on it. And you, you've got a VM that runs a browser that runs JavaScript, that runs this package, that runs this framework. And then finally, somewhere up at the top, you write this little bit of code and the the path that that code takes in terms of the layers of stuff that it goes through before it actually does anything <laughs> is actually pretty incredible. So I just the reason I'm mentioning it is no matter what you're doing, you are relying on tons of stuff that other people did. So don't be too reticent to embrace some of these things that could potentially make your life easier in terms of that's kind of how we solve these complicated problems, right? We have a bunch of people that are like, I'm going to solve this part of the problem. Okay, that part of the problem is solved. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We can build on that. And then then we're constantly building and, and solving little pieces of the puzzle. And then at some point is where the developer gets in and says, no, this is the specific stuff that I need to do. So I'm going to write something for to do this specific thing. Yeah. So we've talked about acknowledging how complicated, especially our tooling has gotten over the years. Has anybody worked to try to make their workflow less complex? Patrick, I feel like I've had a conversation with you about this in the past where you've talked about, I've tried to re- rely less on third-party tools for this, this, that, and the other. Maybe it was like a build chain tool. Are you Have you taken steps to try to reduce the complexity of your projects over the years? CodeKit. Yeah. <laughs> if only, man, that, those are the days. Yeah, those uh, were the days. Mamp and code kit. Like that just never failed me. <clears throat> then why aren't, if it never failed you, why aren't you using it? <laughs> Boom. Uh, Anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, I I certainly, I mean, Jonathan, you and I were talking about, and one of the reasons I use Nuxt as a tool is because it it does let you have much less context switching from technology to technology. It lets you really focus on view as the way that you're going to build the site and then have it just be statically generated and having less moving parts on the front end because you don't have a whole CMS that's up and running and and to worry about going down the whole time. You know, I, I don't know. In some ways, it's made things more complex. There's now new technologies to learn, new 
problems to solve when things do come up. But you're, you know, we're now tapping into a much larger node ecosystem when it comes to the front end, rather than trying to have to always write your own twig that hooks into a backend service or whatever it might be. So in some ways, it's allowed us to have a, a wider range of integrations we can work with. So yeah, rather than we were working with Jazz HR, uh, applicant tracking set up recently, and I'm sure there's a composer package out for it that we could then bring into craft to make a custom module. That's all very custom in the node world. People have written plenty of libraries out there that work with it. And it was literally four or five lines of an import module and filling an API key and we were off to the races. Something like that let us use someone else's technology to get up and running a lot more quickly than we otherwise might have, then you know, it does mean that there is more code and more things to worry about. And like you said, Andrew, we're running even further from the metal. And if there's a problem, it, it now becomes, oh no, this library that we're relying on is causing us issues. But that's when you go to GitHub and you hold your breath <laughs> and, and, until you see, you know, when it was last updated and you see it was, <laughs> you see it was last updated in the last few months and you're like, oh, thank God. Oh yeah. I spent a lot of time just scanning the, uh, the list of code. Okay, how many days ago? Months ago? Years ago? Okay, how many stars? There's a lot of yeah social proof that GitHub helps out with. Yeah, in terms There's... of yeah making things easier. I mean, yeah, I've I found that our switch over to Nux has made a lot of project a bit easier, and sometimes it can actually help sell clients because we're using a platform that's more transferable to other CMSs to other developers if they ever did have that concern. Yeah, I, I don't know in terms of things I've done to really fundamentally change the way that I break down problems or approach problems. Yeah, I think I'll tell you a little hack that I've started using that's greatly reduced the complexity of my projects. I'm, I've started using Wix. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Was that so Pat- code flow, screen flow, screen? The one that uh, Andrew is talking. Oh, Webflow. Co- uh, Webflow. Webflow. Webflow, yeah. You can, hey, you can mock it all you want. They're, they're a pretty big company. <laughs> uh, it's definitely the best of yeah. the like drag and drop type website builders. Still so doesn't here, work on an iPad, I think. Pat, was, your middle name is Edge Case. Anyway. <laughs> That iPad thing is real fringe. You may. Who who is going to do web development on an iPad? Like, why? Not development, even content authoring. You can't. I mean, unless it's changed. I hope it has. I didn't realize that. I I knew that their editor didn't work on an iPad. I didn't know that you couldn't update your site from it. No. In any. uh, Hopefully they fixed it. But you made a really interesting point, Patrick. That. Really? You, you ever you you make them all the time. I just don't like. I, I don't like to tell you. Your head gets too big. So it's no good. But you ever see online where people get involved in these language wars? Like, oh, you're doing that in JavaScript. Like JavaScript sucks. Or you're you're still using PHP or Ruby. That's that's still a thing. Like, don't do it in Ruby. Like, go write it in this, that, the other thing. The la- listen. Anyone who's paying attention, the language does not matter. The language is not the important part. It absolutely is not. The important part is the ecosystem. And I think you kind of touched on that earlier when you were talking about, I just went and I I found this node package that did my thing, right? Mm -hmm. I think the ecosystem in terms of whatever it is you're choosing to build something with matters way more than a lot of the specifics of it definitely matters more than the language, you know, by, by far. And it's like, I remember I was doing some consulting for a CTO that was trying to decide what language they were going to use to write this kind of complicated fintech backend. And they were going back and forth, you know, should it be Go? Should it be Node? Should it be .NET? And my advice to him was, look, what you should do is look at the talent pool where you are. Any one of those things, if you have a a good talent pool, you can build something
something incredibly solid with. Look at the talent pool and then choose the language from there because you can build something great or something awful in any of these languages. So the ecosystem in terms of the packages that are out there, but then also in terms of the developers that are out there that you could tap into, I think are super important when you're looking at solving complicated problems. Interesting. So getting back to the whole, it's impossible for anybody to be a lone wolf anymore. This is just kind of a side thing. I can't remember the guy's name. I think it's Thomas White, but I may be wrong about that. This like, there's a guy who's a British designer and he did a TED talk where he talked about how he wanted to see if it was possible to build his own toaster. So he basically took like <laughs> the simplest of things out there mechanically, something that literally toasts your bread. He went and bought the cheapest one he could find because the assumption was the cheapest one will probably be the most simple one. Mm. But when he deconstructed it at home, he found out that you know it was made up of 400 different parts. It's like, how can you even tackle something as simple as a toaster these days? If you consider, it really takes an entire civilization to build a toaster now. You've got to have people mining the ore, deriving the plastic. It's... It's actually pretty amazing how far that he got if you watch the full video. But yeah, um but that's the way it works, right? It's the yeah. it's the ecosystem that builds this thing. You don't that's the whole point. You wake up in the morning, you don't have to know how your toaster works. You just know when you put a piece of toast in there and you press the button, it's gonna come out toasted. You just don't have to know. And it's the same thing with your car. You know, you don't have to know how a carburetor works. You don't know how how to have to rebuild an engine these days. You just need it to be able to take you from place A to place B. And even though as developers we see ourselves as, you know, master craftsmen or whatever, we are still relying on a whole lot of stuff that we don't really know how it works. We just know that here's the con- the API, which is the contract, and this is what it's supposed to do. And you just kind of cross your fingers and hope it works. <laughs> So I used to be this person that said I was uncomfortable with a black box. And I still kind of am to a certain extent. But gosh, you you really have to let go of that in this business because you are working with so many black boxes on a daily basis. If you're not comfortable with not having a complete understanding of how everything in your tool set works, Mm -hmm. you're going to be a really stressed out individual. Right. Yeah. I mean, how many front-end developers could you sit down and ask them, how does a CPU actually work? You know, I mean, there are probably very few that would understand it, yet every single computer that you use relies on that. Or even on a higher level, explain to me how Vue works. How's the virtual DOM work? Right. Yeah, sure. But you, and that's the whole point, right? Because if you did need to know all this stuff, you'd never be able to build the more complex stuff. And that's what all of these layers of technology are. uh, Ways of solving the problem to the point where you can do super complicated things. And that's what drives me nuts when I see people complaining about how complicated the tooling is or how complicated this is or that is because we are building stuff these days that is so that is unimaginable a decade ago in terms of building stuff on the web and you could not do it without all this stuff it would be impossible it would be impossible right yeah so up until this point we've talked about how we tackle these projects. Uh, what are our strategies for for diving into solving a complicated problem? But it, it would be interesting to talk about when do we attempt to solve these problems? So I have a history of getting text messages from Andrew Welch at 1230 <laughs> at night, uh, letting me know that he's just sent me a pull request for something that we've been working on. I do not work well late at night, but Andrew, you seem to. Are you a bit of a night owl? Do you find that you do your best work in the dead of night? You are 
are you would take it you're probably not a morning person when it comes to diving into solving a complicated problem? So for the vast majority of my life, I have been a night owl. Since having kids, that has changed by necessity. By necessity. By necessity. Yeah, because I mean, I'm obviously it's a, a team effort, but I, I'm the one that I take the kids to the school in the morning. And we, you know, because of the whole COVID thing, we don't have them riding the bus in the morning, but they ride it in the afternoon and whatever. So I have to get up at a certain time. So whereas the way I used to be before I had kids was I'm just going to go to bed whenever I'm tired. If I'm really into this problem, I'm just going to work on it until 4 a.m. or whatever, because I wouldn't have to deal with the consequences. Right? I wouldn't have a kid jumping on me in three hours. You know what I mean? But now that that's the case, I'm really a much less of a night owl. If you have ever had, you know, a late night PR from me or whatever, it's really out of desperation. And what it means is... What it means is that I was super busy doing other stuff during the day, and that was the only time that I could fit it in to do it, or I just felt like doing it at that point in time. But really, I don't do a ton of work late at night anymore. I used to do. That used to be when all the magic happened, but this is not the case anymore. Well, I mean, there kind of is an emotional pattern to our daily lives, which I'll talk about in just a second. Mm. But I know that necessity has dictated that you now wake up earlier than you normally would, and you're likely working earlier in the day than you normally would. But do you think that that's how your brain is actually best suited to solve problems? Or do you feel like you, if if kids weren't in the equation and your schedule was yours to decide, do you feel like you would do your best work at night? Or do you? I do. Okay. I do. And and absolutely not. I mean, I, you have to fit into whatever realities are around you. So no, I don't think that I'm not a morning person. I'll probably never be a morning person, but I think it's important to, you mentioned something about uh, keeping track of your emotions or whatever. I kind of do that. Like when I'm, I know whether I'm, I'm ready to solve a really complicated problem. And I know other days where I'm just like, oh, like I can't, you know, I'm just going to do light duty stuff that I could do with my eyes closed. And and I think it's the same way with writers and, and people who do uh, creative things where they kind of they're kind of riding their own wave. You know, you're a passenger in your in your own body or mind and you're just kind of waiting until you're on the crest of the wave and then you're going to plunge down it and surf down it. And I think the I'm somewhat lucky in that regard. And I think I may be luckier than than Patrick in this regard. And, and I'd be curious to hear what he says, because I am not working on projects that often that have incredibly tight deadlines so I can afford to to put something off for a while because I know that I need to think about it for a while. Whereas there are lots of people, if you're working on something, it's supposed to be, you're, you got a boss that tells you it has to be done by such and such a time. You have to make compromises. You you can't do the in-depth research before deciding how to do something unless that's been worked into the process because they expect it done by a certain time. You know, what do, what do you think, Patrick? Do you feel that pressure? And do you you wish you could go into it deeper? Or do you, or what, what's the deal? Yeah, I mean, I, I have younger kids and especially now with COVID and everyone's home, you know, yeah. not as much as it was in the spring and, and summer. That that's been really tough in terms of productivity and getting into mm-hmm. you know, what is a great book by Cal Newport, uh, Deep Work, talking about a place where you can just get into a groove and start working. There are days where I, I feel like I maybe get an hour and a half or two hours of real work done just yeah. because I'm I'm yeah. switching or I'm being distracted or oh this you know I need to call the financial company that's only open during business hours so I kind of take time for that. There are so many days where I'm like what 
what did I actually get done today? Mm. If I stay up late and I'm then by myself and I don't have client emails or other distractions, I can get a lot done, but I also feel like I'm mortgaging my energy from the next morning or day. And if I stay up too late, I'm just going to be a mess and pay for it the next day. I certainly find that if I can find time, sometimes at night, but often on the weekends, I can get the house to myself. That's a lot of times when I will just plow through and knock out an entire complex plugin or module that I've been meaning to build for a while. And I'll get something done in an afternoon that I've been stressing out over for weeks, maybe, and never really just having time to really have uninterrupted time to get through it. One thing I think you've talked about on the show previously, Andrew, is that you work almost entirely out of a a small barn Mm -hmm. um, off of your house. And again, it it again makes me think of this book, uh, Deep Work, where they talk about Carl Jung, and he actually built, I think, like a an entire area just for him to go and be alone and do deep thinking and deep work in a place that was physically different. You've heard of writers talk about having a writing room or a work room. I, I think that is one big thing. I think everyone needs to find whatever it may not be. You may not have the luxury of having you know a, your own space in your house, but it may even be like I'm going to go to the coffee shop, throw on the headphones. Maybe not coffee shop. No, <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, there, just there are ways to break your normal routine and break your normal set of distractions that I think can be really helpful when it comes to finding time to get out of a routine of being distracted and find a way to just set set yourself down and and just go again back pre-COVID. And I talked to Brandon Kelly of Pixel and Tonic about this. I, I sometimes would be amazingly productive on airplanes. I, I would have mm. spotty Wi-Fi so I couldn't be watching YouTube or I couldn't be you know doing other things. I might not have email, but I could, all right, I have some code and actually I have all my dependencies here already loaded and let me just code. Let me just work. I used to knock out a good bit of stuff on long air, air flights. So I, I think any way people can find a way to get a, kind of in a zone and in a place where they can work uninterrupted is always a good thing. When I started my business, I found that I needed a different place to work for my house. And so this is sort of similar to Andrew's barn. I mean, it's literally in your backyard. You could work from your house, but you obviously feel the need to have a separate space. So when you're at your home, you're home with your kids and you're doing your thing there. And when you're in the barn, you're working. I found the same thing for me. I didn't have any separation between my home life and my work life because it was all the same place. It's kind of interesting in COVID times when everybody's sort of being forced to work from home. I wonder how that's working out for some people. But uh, for me, it didn't work. I can tell you that because of the kids issue, my time, my alone time where I can focus on deep work, it's maybe a half or a third of what it was, like literally, just because of how the dynamics of things that have have changed in terms of the kids are no longer at school full time. So we have to be teachers and we have to be daycare and we have to do all that kind of stuff. So that has definitely cut into it. Like I have noticed that my output is way lower than it used to be just because there's more stuff going on. But getting back to the, the complicated problems or solving complex problems, I think that complex problems, in order to really solve them well, it takes time. It takes time for your mind to kind of wrap around it. And part of the way you can force that is by planning, right? You can try planning everything. And I definitely do some of that in terms of, you know, sketching it out and the prototyping that I mentioned, all that kind of stuff. But the other thing, at least for me, is I establish the parameters of the problem I'm trying to solve. And then I just let it sit, you know, I let it sit for a while. And I find that I just end up figuring out all aspects of the problem. 
And it's not like I'm not doing anything in the meantime. I'm doing other work. I'm doing other stuff. But I try not to jump into this stuff immediately. You know, I do I do my planning and everything, but I, I just found that my brain works better that way by kind of letting it soak its way into the problem. Yeah, interesting. So not to throw another book at you, Andrew. Maybe just, we'll actually kickstart your reading habit. I'm um, not going to read it anyway, but what is it? <laughs> yeah, so there's this guy named Daniel Pink who wrote a book called Win. And this is sort of getting at this part of the conversation when we were talking about when do you actually do your best work. And he talks about the study that was done at Cornell where they took the software that analyzed Twitter every day. And so they examined 500 million tweets over a two-year period. Did it decide to annihilate the human race? Yeah. (laughs) So... What was interesting is that people had this general sense of positivity in the morning, right? And this was analyzed as best as they could through this through this software. Okay. But then it slightly drops as the day goes on. And then in the afternoon, it basically goes off a cliff. And then in the evening, it returns. So you have this cycle happening every single day, pretty much to everybody, regardless of your race or nationality or anything else. Now, social media, of course, is not, people are not always 100% honest on social media. It's like Facebook syndrome. You're always trying to put forth your best appearance or whatever. So there is there is that. But there's other other studies that confirm this, that this is the case, that in general, people are more positive in the morning, the afternoon, they hit a big slump, and then in the evening, it returns. So that basically leads to this idea that there is a certain time of day, depending on what personality type you have, in terms Mm. of what kind of work you should be tackling. Like maybe you should be reserving your more creative tasks, like if you're working on a new design or something, maybe you should push that to the afternoon and do the more analytical stuff in the morning. Or maybe it's vice versa. If you're like a night owl, um, sometimes that can flip. But so I've sort of been thinking about that as well in terms of if I'm planning out my day, is morning the really, really the best time for me to sort of plow through some really interesting uh, creative uh, tasks that I'm trying to tackle? Or maybe I should move that to the afternoon. I don't know if you guys sort of plan your day out or anybody tried to do that. Has anybody said, you know what, when you walk in in the morning, I'm going to sit here and try to make a list of everything I want to accomplish today. And I'm going to try to have this is my my workflow for the day. Are you guys a little more loosey goosey with your work? <laughs> I do that sometimes. I, I sometimes will in the morning start off and say, okay, here here's today's date. Here is everything. Let me just put down a list of everything that I'm carrying in my head. And here's what is going well. Here's the things that are medium. Here are things that are really need attention. And then I almost look at them and say, like, what is causing me the most stress, the most concern? I'll try to label those as such. And sometimes I'll also say, okay, what will make me the most amount of money if I can just get it done or, or kind of give me a little bit of reward by, oh my gosh, if I just spend a half hour, then I can actually send that invoice and, and get this out the door. Getting things out of my head and into a list certainly help. And you know, and then I put like a big all in caps done after it as I finish them. And that can help too. It just, it gives you, you know, I'm not someone that writes on paper. I know some people will do that as well because they just like the act of writing and putting, you know, having a physical object, but I find digital Bujo. works. The Bujo. What's that? The Bujo. There you go. The bullet journal. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I find getting things out of my mental consciousness and anxiety and, and whatnot and into a list that I can then see progress as, I, as I'm knocking them out helps quite a bit. But it's usually something that happens when I'm getting to a critical mass of things that I've mm. been putting off or not catching up with. That's how I tend to go. That's exactly what I do, Patrick. So <laughs> it, 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 it used to be, so when I would sit down and make a list of stuff to tackle, 
it would be when I would start getting the feeling that I was not not overwhelmed, but just I had a lot of stuff to do. So I got a lot of stuff to do. So I got to I got to organize this somehow so that I can figure out how I'm going to tackle it and do it. What I have been and, and that really helped me in terms of getting stuff done. What I've tried to do since then is I try to just have less stuff to do because, you know, there are two ways you can do it. You can be try to be hyper organized and, you know, make the best use of every second of your day to try, try and chisel away and get certain things done or you can just give yourself less to do. And I have found that that has been really liberating for me. I realize you can't always do it, but you can think about, do I really need to take on this other project? What is this? Okay. It's going to make me X more amount of money. What's it going to do to my life in terms of stress and free time and time with the kids and time with the family and all that kind of stuff, you know? So being more selective, being more willing to say no to things. Being more willing to say no to things and, and being okay with, if that means that I make less money, like, okay, like I'm all right with that, you know? what I mean? Like I don't, I don't have to constantly compete with other people or my former self, but I have found the best way to get things done is to have fewer things on your list. I mean, it sounds silly, but it, it's worked out for me. But what you're talking about earlier in terms of different times of the day to do stuff sounds like something that used to be really popular back in the sixties, Patrick, when I was growing up, I wasn't growing up in the sixties, everybody, just so you know, but this thing called biorhythms, right? And the idea was like your, your body goes through, uh, and I think they had three different layers there's an emotional a physical or whatever and i think it's called chronotypes now but all right whatever the new fancy modern way to do it. But yeah. the the idea that you're you're kind of fluctuating, and that's similar to what I was talking about in terms of the wave and riding the wave, I have found that it's not necessarily the time of day. It's how how tired I am or am not. If I wake up and I'm super tired because I didn't sleep well or I was up late working or whatever, I know myself well enough to know that trying to tackle a really complicated problem is just not going to work. So I find work that I can do and do competently without it being incredibly difficult to do. So well, that's, that's least, exactly, you just do like the the monotonous kind of got to yes. get it done work. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. exactly. And so for me, it's not necessarily time of day that I'm doing. It. It's more like, how am I feeling today? And how, how I'm feeling today depends at least in part in how rested I am. But it can, you know, there are other factors that, that can go into it too. Yeah, interesting. So in talking about, we were just talking about anxiety, about knowing things that are on your list and having to get that done. So something that I've found through the years, years is I will, if I have something on my list that I'm dreading doing, like I keep putting it off, I don't want to do it. I sort of build up this false idea of how much of a pain that task is actually going to be. Like I Mm -hmm. hype it up in my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a nightmare. Like this is going to take me forever. Once I start working on it, I know I'm going to run into a problem. It's going to be difficult to solve, whatever. I have found that that's almost never the case. And so I sort of have to give myself a pep talk sometimes. If I see an item on my to-do list and I'm, I've built it up in my brain as this big boogeyman that's going to be really hard to solve, I just have to sort of tell myself, well, you know, like the last couple of times you've thought that about a task, it turns out when you actually got into it, it wasn't that bad. Mm. Um, and so sometimes if you sort of sit down and just write out, like we've already talked about, like spread breaking it up into smaller pieces or, or describing the problem. And maybe it's like your field notes, you pull that out, write down, hey, this is kind of the problem that I'm facing. These are some possible solutions. I've always found that it's, I've sort of built it up into this monster in my mind that it's really not. Just eat your damn carrots, get it over with, right? <laughs> eat the frog, eat the frog. There's another eat book for frog. you, Andrew. Yeah, I've heard of that one. I've got well, a whole hey. lot of books. I've got a whole lot of really awesome books that are just kind of sitting there. <laughs> the same. So we're no sponsorship here. 
totally free advice for this company, but I would recommend Blinkist. It's pretty cool. All right. Yeah. They like summarize the important ideas of nonfiction books in like 15 minute chunks. There you go, Blinkist. Free advertising. You can pay us if you want to. Is it? it it's in audio form then? Yeah. Yeah, okay. audio form. Yeah. It, it could happen then. It's got a potential. It could potentially happen. All right. Well, Andrew, Patrick, any final thoughts on solving complicated problems? I don't think so. No, I think just finding what works for you and what yeah lets you break things down. Talk to other people in your network, too, if you just need to rubber duck it or get things to a point where you don't have to always take this upon yourself. I think that's one other thing. Like, Don't be afraid to talk to someone else because, I mean, Jonathan, you and I have had conversations. You're like, hey, you may have been through something like this before. Let, you know, Have you dealt with this sort of thing and I may have a different perspective or have a past experience. Also, just reach out to whatever network you have because there may be someone else that can either point you in the right direction or telling you, just tell you you're doing things the right way. So learn from other people's mistakes, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I do have just one additional thing to add about to all this in terms of complexity. And I think one of the most important things with dealing with a complicated problem is getting the architecture right or getting the framing right. In other words, getting the skeleton correct so it can support all of the meat that you're going to be putting on it or getting the framework of a building right so that all of the, the floors and then the walls and everything you're going to put on top of it hold up. So I do think that the more complicated the problem is, the more time that you should spend planning the architecture with on which everything will be built. And I don't think that can be understated because if it really is a truly complicated problem, then you have to have a really solid idea of how the thing itself is going to work and how everything is going to fit together and be built on top of it. And it's the case where if you just start writing code and you just start writing code and you just do, you, you may end up somewhere that you may end up with an architecture that looks like it's something out of Dr. Seuss, you know, <laughs> and, and that will stand up in the cartoons or on a, on a drawing on a page, but it's not going to stand up in the real world when you're talking about building a complicated application. So I would say architecture would be a super important thing, whatever that means to the, the project that you're working on. Spend the time to get that right so that filling in the pieces is really just going to be almost pleasurable. All right, good stuff. Well, I think we'll leave that as our final thought. That about wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, drop us a review. Really appreciate it. For the devmode.fm podcast, I'm Jonathan Melville. I'm Andrew Welch. And I'm Patrick Harrington. We'll see you next time. Jonathan, nicely done. Yeah, it was good. That was okay. Yeah, I thought that was a good conversation. And that is the the other thing that you can deal with complexity is like, for instance, do you think building a, a Webpack five config is complicated? Yes. Having having done it, I don't fear it anymore. So, <laughs> having gone through it, it's still complicated, but you know how to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, and that removes the anxiety too. And that's something I actually that's something I actually wanted to I forgot because I actually wanted to say it in there is that it's kind of like driving around in downtown Tokyo. Like it is a really complicated thing to navigate through a city like Tokyo. But once you've done it and you know the lay of the land, like it's it's easy, you know? So just so the fear is in the unknown often. And and you just some things you just gotta learn them, you know? Yeah. All right. Stopping the recording.